episode 17 of the BTB Project. Throughout my coaching career, I've had the opportunity to coach several foreign exchange students. Today's guest was the winner of a future leaders exchange program, which had over 10,000 applications. He was awarded the opportunity to come to America and study at a high school for one year, of which during that time, it was cut short due to the COVID pandemic. As we built our relationship and our friendship, we maintained touch as he went home. But little did I know that just a short time later, his country would be invaded by Russia. Mark Finkovich, representing his country of Ukraine, welcome to the BTB Project. Don't be afraid of the dark. Be careful with stars. Not every light is gonna guide you, baby. Welcome to the BTB Project, designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt, a former athlete and motivational coach. I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a sore high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living all my dreams. If I'm waking up, it's in a foreign land. What a unbelievable opportunity today to welcome Mark Finovich to the BTB project. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Well, you and I come from actually a lot of connecting of dots. And I know that a high school tennis team is what eventually led us to get to know each other. But I want to share to the listeners how small of a world it is that you and I have been connected. So believe it or not, it had to have been eight or nine years ago, I was working with a student that went to a high school here in Colorado, and I got to know her and her mom and dad pretty well. And fast forward to an opportunity that came really out of thin air that I was asked to coach a high school tennis team at Highlands Ranch High School. And the family that I used to help had no ties to Highlands Ranch High School. They happened to be part of a exchange program where they would host students to go to respective high schools across Colorado. I got a call from the mom of the player that I used to help saying, hey, I just found out that you're coaching high school tennis at Highlands Ranch, and I have not one, but two exchange students that will be living with us and they will be placed at Highlands Ranch High School. I then find out, Mark, that the likelihood of you going to Highlands Ranch was a complete coincidence because you actually were supposed to go to their feeder school, which based off of where they lived in Colorado, their feeder school was Rock Canyon. And their program was full. And long story short, I 
get to meet and grow this unbelievable journey that we're about to go through today. So what does it mean to you as I walk through that, how you and I connected in the first place? I mean, the chances were slim, (laughs) to be honest, but I think it all came down to my host mother, right? She really wanted me and fought to play tennis. Yeah. Right. And Brock Canyon did not have that option. Right. Right. So we had to go with Highlands Ranch and that's how we met. So for the listeners, more context, Mark is an exchange student from Ukraine. And at the time that I got to work with Mark, it was a much different situation in his home country than it is now. I want to go back to actually a moment right before we got to this point to where our relationship would would be virtual and having phone calls or video chats. I remember going out to uh, very close to your host family's home and they had this tennis court that ironically, Mark, I knew about this tennis court because I used to live very close to the area and either, you know, driving or going on jogs, I would see this tennis court and it is literally a private tennis court connected to a home that was just like a sanctuary. And granted, when you and I happened to go on that court, it wasn't as much of a sanctuary anymore. Before I talk about that experience, can you tell me about that court? How did that connect to you? I think we were talking about the COVID lockdown time. Yes. And it wasn't the best uh, time to play on the public courts. Yes. So um, pretty much Cheryl has been a friend of Kendall's that owns that uh, property. And uh, one day Cheryl comes to me and says, hey, I know you're going, you know, to Castle Pines, you know, public courts. I mean, if you have a car, those are not far away. They're like 2.5 miles. Uh, being an exchange student, couldn't drive, couldn't legally drive in the United States. 2.5 miles was pretty, quite the distance. Right. Being a quarter of a mile from where I lived. Yeah. It was in very good condition. That's the thing. Yeah, I remember you telling me that you had to do some some hard sweat labor to get the court to look the way that I remember it when I got to see you that last time. What were some of the things that you had to do to get that court ready for you and I? Well, first of all, uh, Cheryl talked with Kendall. <laughs> Kendall agreed to give us the court. Uh, and I'm still think- thankful for that because I went to that court. I practiced my serve. At that time, I had a terrible serve. I only got it fixed when I came back to Ukraine, actually. <laughs> In the end of the day, it was me and Cheryl. We pretty much cracks in concrete. And from those cracks, uh, there there was uh, wheat growing out. Yep. So we we spent a good, I think, two and a half, maybe three hours getting all those weeds from those cracks. Besides the cracks, I think the court was in perfect condition. The cracks was the only issue with those. And boom, in the times of COVID lockdown, we get a private tennis court you can go to practice without any restrictions. So it was definitely a win. was actually something that, you know, I was able to snap a photo and I know you remember it too, with my mask hanging down and there we were on that court. And I think it's important to kind of set the stage of our journey with that photo, because at that moment, my understanding is you got a call from 
the, the government or administration of Ukraine that said, yes, immigration that said, based off of the, the COVID pandemic, you will no longer be able to study in the United States and you must come home immediately. Can you tell the listeners about how you found out and really how much time you had to say your goodbyes before you were on a plane back home? So for me, it was actually a little bit better than for Fuad. Fuad is my, who was also an exchange student. Uh, So pretty much um, he had a week to leave pretty much. uh, so we booked a ticket for him a week after the COVID pandemic was officially declared in the United States. So he had just a week. I had, I think, a month and a couple of days because, you know, they uh, actually gave us the option on, of, on when you want to leave. Ah, okay. And uh, I, I think it was three weeks, two weeks and a month. So I took the month, <laughs> the longest I could. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, I was, from that point on, it was, I was just counting days and I tried to get as much as I could from that. You know, initially I had to do 10 months of exchange from what it was from August, 2019 to June, 2020, but I had to leave in April because of the COVID. So COVID kind of came into our relationship on the back end of the tennis season and I want to go back to that first day that I met you. I remember talking to your host family and I'm actually arranging a tennis lesson with, with you and, and Foha. Was it at 5 a.m.? Was it 5 a.m. or 6 a.m.? <laughs> I remember that I woke up at 5 a.m. or something like that. What I, what I remember the most is you didn't seem very happy um, at first. <laughs> uh, it certainly did not seem happy. It was kind of neat because, you know, here I was as this coach that used to coach daughter of your host family many years ago. And she's reaching out saying, hey, how can you help these two guys? And then to tie it all back together even more, I coached one year previous at Highlands Ranch, of which Highlands Ranch High School, the boys tennis team did not have that much success, Mark. They were not a very good tennis program for a long time. And the only reason why I got there was because I had a friend of mine who was an athletic director at a local school and said, hey, Highlands Ranch High School needs a boys tennis coach. I know you typically coach girls tennis, but we got to get somebody there. Like their athletic director might have to coach the team. It was something that was not a good situation for the players. And so I came in, basically we had nine seniors the year before you came. And it was the most success the school has had in program history. They won nine matches. They had the most victories since 1986 when the school opened. So four positions qualified for state. One of those positions ended up finishing top three in the state at number two doubles. And after that season, it really became a situation where I didn't think I was going to come back. My son, who was getting closer to being a high schooler was really interested in the school that was across the street from Highlands Ranch called Valor Christian. And I always told my son and my kids that whenever they're in high school, I want to be close to them as much as I'm a coach. I'm a, I'm a parent and I wanted to be close to them. So I didn't know how long I was going to have. And nonetheless, it worked out to where I was there the second season. And I remember sitting down with the athletic director and he's like, listen, you know, we got, we got quite an exchange 
program coming in this year. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, you know, I know you've been talking to one of the host families. We got a kid from Ukraine. We got a kid from Bolivia. We got a, a kid from the Netherlands. And, and I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, are we going to have like an international tennis team at Highlands Ranch High School? <laughs> and it just, it blew my mind that all of these stars were lining and then here we are, it's practice. You came out, you and Fohad, it was before the season started. Tell me what you remember about that first time on the court with you and I. I remember that it was cold because it's still morning. I was wearing shorts. I, I was, I think it was third or maybe fourth day of my stay there. And I'm, you know, still not getting, I'm still not used to the climate, right? And, uh, uh, I'd say it was tough physically because I was just not ready. No, I was not ready in terms of uh, altitude. Outside of the altitude, I mean, what type of formal tennis training did you have or did you have any lessons yeah. back in Ukraine yeah. before that day? I think I've been playing tennis for almost two years. Then I dropped it for whatever reason. I don't know. I, I was a kid. <laughs> so was, sorry for that. <laughs> and then I decided to refresh my knowledge, I think, three or two weeks prior to coming to the United States. So I was practicing multiple times a week throughout that time. And then I came to the United States, and yeah, here we are. It was very humbling for me in that moment because... I have no idea what it must have felt for you and Fohad to much as you were excited about getting to the United States and being an exchange student. And we're going to talk about that later about how you're able to accomplish that. But listen, there's a certain level of uncertainty with new environments, new family, new situation. And listen, I know that the opportunity was very meaningful for you, but how did you feel in that moment being with, a stranger, someone that you didn't know very well in myself. And at what point did you start thinking, you know, this guy actually might be able to help me? When you tried to explain how, how, how to hold the rat in the proper way. Ah, <laughs> the grip. Yep. The listeners and you know, my tennis background, being a college tennis player, I played a lot of international players. A lot of them were very expressive <laughs> and that's a good way. Yes. Good way and it. listen, I mean, a lot of them were on scholarship and in the United States, very similar to you. They had an opportunity. They, they fought for it. They knew how to persevere, to overcome. And uh, I think there's a lot we can learn as American citizens from that mentality. And uh, as we talked about before we hopped on, you were so complimentary of some of my personal stories and things that I fought through. And it actually led me to have just such a deep respect for any international player that got on the same court with me. Even though I'm a Colorado native and I'm from the United States, the best tennis training that I had was two coaches from Poland in Arizona for 13 months and those guys did not say much English to me. They actually spoke two English words, and it was run and the S word. And that was basically it. <laughs> but they had this. Quite effective, huh? Exactly. Quite effective. Very effective because I responded to, they saw the fight and desire that I had. I saw 
the compassion and love and support that they had for me. So I had a lot of opportunity long before I met you to hone in how to engage and develop international players. I think what was most telling to me was not only were you receptive to learn how to, you know, use a grip or hit a ball, but you never quit. You never asked questions. Like you asked constructive questions, but you never questioned what I was doing. And I think the response to that was was truly breathtaking. I then learned from your background, Mark, and I want you to speak about this, is what's it like trying to play tennis in Ukraine? Because it's much different than the United States. You can't just walk down the street and open a gate and go hit some tennis balls. It's a lot different. Can you explain what it was like? Yeah, sure. In Ukraine, tennis is, is a sport for the people from the upper class. And, you know, upper, upper middle class. But pretty much uh, back when I started playing tennis, when I started, you know, attending uh, the practices, I think the price pretty much remained the same in uh, in dollars. But due to inflation in Ukraine, it changed over time. So it was a lot more and a lot more. But I think to rent a court, it was 5 to ten dollars depending on the spot that court was located on so if we're talking about you know uh, downtown or city center it was closer to ten dollars if we're talking about outskirts yeah that, that could easily be five but you know you have to take into account the transportation and the time you're going to spend you're getting there and just to remind if you're only allowed to drive uh, in ukraine if uh, you're over 18 years old right ah okay not yeah so it's not 16 and, and up right yeah and uh, most of them at least don't have a car, even no car per household. That wasn't the case with my family, but overall speaking, if you want to play tennis in Ukraine, there has to be a lot of luck or a lot of effort, two things. Interesting that you say that because that is really what I want to get into. The The meat and potatoes of our conversation is, is your journey. And you use that word effort. And as your coach, I saw effort each and every day. And I tried to really understand the why behind it. What makes this guy tick? What made him into who the person he is today? Please walk me and the listeners through how you became an exchange student in the United States, meaning the application process, the almost competition, it seemed, within Ukraine that you had to be one of the best. I wouldn't say I, I was the best or one of the best, but it also had some luck and effort to it. I have to tell you. <laughs> Here's this um, exchange program. It's called FLEX, which stands for Future Leaders Exchange Program. It's funded by the U.S. Department of State. Pretty much when I was participating in it, uh, the numbers were pretty, pretty much the same throughout You know, the last six to seven years. It was 10,000 applicants. Then in the end of the day, it was about 250 people were in the entire mass. Three rounds of uh, interviews, just application process. So the very first one was, you know, something like language tests to see if you know the English, if you can do the basic stuff. And I think that's actually uh, the stage where it only depends on luck, because I know a lot of people who applied who had a lot better English knowledge than I did, and they didn't make it. 
So I think uh, so. First round, first round is just a, a English luck. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And then the second second round, walk me through that one. The se- second round it was essays on uh, specific questions. They wanted to know what type of person you are and how you respond to certain situations. So those were model situations. They were asking for your response and your actions in this, those particular uh, situations. Do you remember a question to... specific that maybe you could share? Did you remember I, this? I think, I think the, there was something uh, basic. I think they're basic interview questions when you're trying to get employed. Like, tell me about experience when you had to, you know, lead a team or, you know, be a leader or something. Situational so questions. Of, yep. Yes. Situational questions. Some of the stuff that just, you know, shows who you are as a person and how if if you're capable of you know dealing with the various type of situations Uh, and that's really understandable because when you're a child we're talking 16 15 17 right years old of age that that's the time frame when you can participate so as a child you have to be capable of you know uh understand the basic stuff you have to understand the world around you and you have to be capable of making decisions. Third step was actually the interview. And it wasn't like an interview that lasted 15 minutes. And pretty much those interviews were conducted in the groups of six, six people. Usually only one of those six people made it. Wow. So you were in a group so, of, of, so, six, of six people and only one of those six. One wow. in the room comes down to like... 1,000 people they have to select from, right? So they cut it down from 10,000 to 1,000. And then from 1,000, they just select. And pretty much you are in the room with people, you know, you know, it's either you or them. <laughs> and you, you just try to perform your best. Some of the friends that actually participated in this program prior to me, they said, no, don't try to be anything else. Don't try to be someone who you are not. Ah. And everything's going to be all right. And that's how it worked out in the end of the day. So somebody that does not give themselves much credit sometimes, what did it mean to you to know that you were selected for this program? And what did it mean to your family knowing that their son was going to be able to, to study abroad? They were happy and sad at the same time. Well, dad was happy. My mother was a little bit worried. Uh, when I won, I was still 15 years old, right? So uh, when I arrived in the United States, by the way, I was still 15 years old. So I was still not allowed to, to travel without guardian or person responsible for me, mm. an adult, right? I always knew that, and I think my family understood it very well. If there's such an opportunity, I have to take it. It's a whole different world. It's, it's a whole different culture. It would be a sin to deny it, not to take it. So based off of being selected, if you were to think back to that moment and think about the selection committee or representative that decided that Mark was going to be part of this program. What characteristic do you have that you believe was one of your biggest strengths that separated you from others? I had inner confidence that I'm going to make it. And then that, that inner confidence that came from, it came from my faith. I have to be honest that time it came from my faith and uh, that's that's the case here i think that inner confidence that you talked about when you got here and when you were representing the tennis team that i was fortunate to coach the hardest thing for me to 
instill in a player is inner confidence to, to want it, you know? Yeah. Well, in terms of, you know, getting selected, it was just, you know, I really cannot explain that it was one of my personal characteristics or values. It was just one of those things to this day. I can say I was 100% sure I'm going to make it. And I can't explain where it came from. I still, to this day, don't have any confidence in any of the aspects of my life. But at that time, I had this. I'm going to make it. And uh, my reasoning for this was like, I'm going to make it because, well, that's going to change my life in in the better direction. And that's actually, that actually was the case in the end of the day. And we ended up, you know, having that season and you're right on the, the edge of, of qualifying for state. We made the fourth place, I think. Right. You're right there. You know, nonetheless, we, we then had our COVID court moments and you're off on a plane and in touch, uh, you know, kind of sparingly, during that time, and then I'll never forget, I saw on the news that there was a possibility Ukraine could be invaded by Russia. At that point, when that was starting to stir up, I just remember texting you, you know, making sure you're okay, and then when it actually happened... You were one of the first people who actually te- texted me from the United States. I think the timing... I think you gave me a call. I think you gave yeah, me a call. I remember it that. Wasn't a text. I yeah, no, I ended up calling you. I was out on a on a work on a work meeting dinner and I stepped out and called and I tried to put two and two together. One, like, yes, I knew you were from Ukraine, but two, I heard about if you are a male citizen and what 18 years old, you yes. have to stay and protect your country. Mark, walk me and the listeners through that moment well i actually was finishing my shift it, it ended at 4 a.m so uh, it ended at 4 a.m and the war started actually at 4 30 i think and 4 30 about 4 30 a.m i went to bed you know so i sleep a couple of hours and then i wake up from a call i have like 12 or maybe more missed calls and uh my mother couldn't get a hold of me. My father couldn't get a hold of me because, you know, I'm sleeping after the shift. Right. You know, Going to be at least a couple of hours until I even can, can hear something. Um, so uh, the call I got uh, was from my uh, uncle. Very serious. Um, Mark, the war has started. I took it as a joke, but I said, Mark, I'm not joking. The war has started. Uh, call your mom. Mm. She's worried. I called my mother. They were actually in Kherson. My mother and my father. My father worked there. I was in a different place. I was in my hometown because we had, you know, we had to uh, study from home because of the COVID restrictions in the university. So I decided, you know, I'm going to stay in my hometown. And Kherson was actually taken a couple of days after the war started, right? So they left the city in the very early morning. I was very worried for them. But when I called my mother, she, uh, she said that they were, you know, in, in miles, that we, 100 miles from Kherson. So they said by the evening, we'll be at home. And uh, just from the perspective, Kherson is about, it's 700 miles. And those are not U.S. roads. Just like, you know, those are not U.S. quality roads. So it's Talking, talking back roads, maybe one way each direction in some cases. It, it takes a while. A lot longer, yeah. 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 Now, why so, at that point were you so far away? 
Was that was because um, you were studying at university, or I know that with the COVID was, restrictions, it was it was different. But can you tell tell us about the demographic difference between you and your your, your mother? Yeah, my my mother, my father, and I moved to Gerson, two thousand twelve, and he got a job at the oil refinery there, and I had to move with him because I was a child. You know, I had no options really. <laughs> right then, I you know got accepted to. University in Kiev, so I was in the capital city. So uh, I was studying there, and then after about about a month of studying, we had a COVID lockdown in the university. You know, some people contracted COVID and they shut down you know, other studies. It's it happened so that that shutdown actually lasted from October to February, and in the beginning of March, we we were gonna go back to you know normal in class studies uh, but that didn't happen i wasn't i was in uh, rivna which is my hometown okay. right it's in the western ukraine so i was worried that you know we're gonna get con- conquered or occupied or whatever but uh we still had you know some you know airstrikes yeah, and walk. I mean, walk us through that. I I know that when we were talking, um, when this all started happening, and you and we were keeping in touch, that it seemed like you were in a relatively safe place for whatever that safe place looks like in the middle of a war. Because, you know, listen from from my perspective, when I think of invasion and I think of war, I think of a chaotic scene, you know, and and just trying to you know fight or flight protect yourself, protect your loved ones, protect your country. But I got a much different picture from you with that. Can you, can you talk about some of those airstrikes and really kind of what the day in and day out was uh, during the beginning and, and kind of middle of all of this? I think the first couple of weeks were the toughest ones, right? Um, in terms of because uh, the Russians had a lot of... Um, they had a lot of missiles in the beginning of the war. Well, they had an arsenal, right? They could. I think we were getting a couple of air raid alarms per day, and uh, I, I thought I was in the safe spot, and I, I, I actually was. But it happened so that uh, within five miles in each direction, there was some sort of strategic object <laughs> located. And the one of those objects was an actual military base. You can look it up on the Google Maps. You'll see. You know, there's a lot of. It, it's an actual military base. Uh, one of the, the other one was uh, the oil storage. I think a couple of thousand tons of fuel <laughs> was stored there. Stored there, so like a big tanker ship, pretty much. So you had missiles that were within five miles of where you were. Yes, 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 and they the missiles are all and there was there's an airport, but you know there's nothing. It's not as dangerous because it's not going to explode, right? So, um, and within two weeks, all of those uh, places got hit with a missile or two. Got to experience the explosions firsthand, you know. What was it like? Uh, sound shake where you're standing. I mean, what? Yeah, the the windows were shaking when the military base blew up. Actually, my, the house was shaking. 
so not just the windows but the walls and the dust you know fell off the ceiling so that was the case very not not a thing you want someone to experience oh let's put it that way after a month yeah. month or two you kind of get rockets you know hitting everything outside and you just you know take it as it is and i think that's the case for every ukrainian people are just used to it with time i know that and i can't thank you enough for walking us through that because it makes me reflect back to i was a high school sophomore and i remember our school day just stopped and they brought in these tvs and on the tv I was watching two planes crash into the World Trade Center in New York. I didn't know how to respond to that. I remember shortly before that moment with the World Trade Center being in school, having TVs rolled in and watching a school down the street at Columbine High School watching two gunmen go through and kill students. That um, happened in Colorado. I think think Columbine was, was like 10 miles from Highlands Range. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too far from from you and I when when you were out here. I share those because that that's where my my gut and my heart go when things like this happen. And what is really fascinating to me is going back to what you shared that helped you get through this flex program to get accepted as an exchange student is inner confidence and faith. When this yeah. all started happening, Mark, can you tell me how you tapped into that? Because it seems like your mom, your dad, your siblings, in that time, you showed a tremendous amount of courage composure and almost like you were leading your family per se in that moment. Can you speak to that inner confidence and faith? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it was inner, but I would say because I knew they were not in Kherson, because I knew I was not near the border, everything's going to be all right. Because in such situations, you can't, I wouldn't really say that you can depend on something from within. You try to operate with, you know, logic yeah. and facts. Eventually, and you got to take action, right? But you have yes, to have yes. the confidence to take action. That's within you, yes. You can either sit, do nothing, or you go ahead and do something. And um, my day started with going to the gas station, staying, you know, for whatever amount of hours in line, and, you know, getting the gasoline. Fortunately, the gas shortages didn't happen uh, in the first couple of months. Before. but they did happen later on so my father thought it's gonna it's gonna happen in the very first couple of days luckily so, that wasn't the case so you know at that point 18 years old you have to stay back in ukraine your parents are are relocated to the czech republic yeah in the end of the day my parents decided that it's gonna be safer for my mother and my brothers to leave uh, for Czech Republic since uh, for a couple of months they they were not going to school you know it's war everything is a mess there's no accurate 
information whatsoever. You just have to make a decision. You know, if you go to Czech Republic, if you have kids, right? Let's say you have, would you like your uh, children to have the education for sure, or just, you know, to stay in the pending state, not knowing when the studies are going to continue. So it's a no brainer. You see behind me with my daughter. I mean, that's our, uh, that's our homeschool desk. And my wife fights very hard for our kids' education, uh, just within the, the four walls of our house. And to know that that was going on in your country and there was an opportunity to continue that education for your siblings, uh, I, I applaud your parents for doing that. And, yep. you know, Mark, I, I think it was really telling to, to walk through what it was like when this all first started. But can you speak to the Ukrainian people, your president, what does that all mean to you knowing what you know today what you've been through, what your country has persevered and overcome. Who is Ukraine? Who is your president? And what does it mean to you? Ukraine is certainly my country. I know pre-war, there were a lot of people who were saying, ah, you know, I'm not that big of a patriot. You know? mm. I mean, I don't mind move to move. I don't mind moving it, bro. Well, right now, a lot of people, uh, are identifying as 100% Ukrainian. Uh, you don't you don't actually know this thing if you're not a Ukrainian, but uh, pre-war, a lot of people were you know kind of in the middle of you know whatever it is. A lot of people were uh, speaking Russian and identifying in relating more to Russia than to Ukraine. However, after the aggression, uh, Russian uh, aggression, the war started. Um, a lot of people made the decision within their mind that they are a separate nation that exists, that uh, they are recognized by Russia as a separate nation because uh, what is happening in Ukraine is, is a full-scale genocide. You know, most of the casualties are not actually military deaths. They're civilian deaths. Right? So, uh, yeah, a lot of people just... At, at one point of time, realize that they just have to be their own enemy, stand up for themselves. And of course, there are people who ran in the first couple of days. Right. But the people who stayed knew what they stayed for. Right? They stayed to, you know, um, when the war started, okay, pre-war, pre-war, if you had to very good example. Pre-war, if you had to go serve in the military, since the military service is mandatory in Ukraine, uh, people were trying to avoid it in various ways, right? But in the first five days of war, there were lines in the uh, complication centers. Pretty much, that's where you enlist. Or they wait where it where they enlist you. Gotcha. And all of those people were wild volunteers. So in a country where no one wants to really serve, everyone wants to serve, everyone wants to defend something of their own. And that's really the case. People wanted to keep 
what they've had for their entire lives, and they couldn't watch it being taken away. That uh, that's powerful, and I appreciate you speaking to the Ukrainian people and and you know the the evolution of of that patriotism um, is really yes, yes. Right now, right now, any person you meet on the street, you ask them. They will have a very strong national identity, very strong national identity. And what is that? And, uh, yeah, yeah. Explain that. No oh, national identity is actually in the United States. When okay, just to give you the difference, in 2019, when I came from Ukraine to the United States, the national identity of Americans was a surprise to me because I heard people say, I'm proud to be an American. You know, when you said something, you know, you know, some like, why, why do you guys do this, do that? Well, because we are American right? in Ukraine. That wasn't the case. And it was a culture shock to me. Um, and it was like, wow, these people are really proud of where they live. They're proud of the place where they live. They are proud to, the citizens of this country and uh, right now in Ukraine that's what happened with the war people have a strong national identity so whereas you know they're proud to say they are Ukrainian as you are proud to say that you're an American again it's something that's perspective right and I'm, I'm connecting all of these dots of what you did as a tennis player what you did as a student what you've done for your country. And it makes me really think of how grateful I was to be able to be any part of your life or be any sort of impact in your life. Yeah. A few remaining questions for you here, Mark, but I want to know based off of what you learned with your tennis and team experience at Highlands Ranch, did you use any of those traits or any of those moments that, you know, you came together as a team or that bond, did, did you, did you come across that again when you were protecting your country and protecting your family and trying to be a, a support during, during this time? I, I want to say thank you for one thing you taught me. Before, before I came, before I get on, got on your tennis team, after to be honest here, I wasn't really putting in the effort. Uh, the effort in terms of showing up and just doing it if you don't like it. With you, that's what I was doing each <laughs> each practice. And uh, to some point, it got into my it got carved into my mind, and you know, I actually started doing the things I don't particularly like, just because I knew that I would better from them in the future, even though I. You know, don't like what I'm doing right now. And um, in terms of uh, war, right, in terms of what was happening uh, to my family being relocated, so on and so forth, we were actually helping a lot in the local community, collecting, you know, uh, the supplies for the people who, who've been relocated. We actually uh, went, the, remember that I told you about that, um, um all oil storage that blew up we actually provided housing for the people who were relocated from their area for mm. a short period of time but still 
because it was just dangerous to be there because you know uh it's highly explosive it was the fire was for a week i think like i couldn't put it out for a week and it was just dangerous to live this again you know dangerous substances that were out there same thing you know with, with uh for distribution of the supplies that were you know donated within the community it's uh it gets me to a point of i think a really important perspective question because i think there's a lot of advice that you can give knowing what you've been through knowing the person you are your intelligence your empathy your ability to understand people mark if you had an opportunity to talk to a, a, a 15 or 16 year old boy or girl that is in the united states right now they're a high school kid maybe they're just confused or, or struggling academically or not sure what they want to do with their life or trying to understand their purpose. If you had an opportunity to talk to a 15 or 16 year old, knowing what you know today, knowing what you've been through in your life, what advice would you give that kid? And the best advice I could give them is just take them to another country. I wouldn't talk to them. Why wouldn't talk to them? Because words don't really mean anything. Mm. When you experience things yourself, yourself, uh, you get to understand a lot more than you can understand from hearing words, right? So I would take them, I don't know, to Honduras, to Ecuador, just to live there for a week. I don't know, live there for a week. You know, after living there for a week, these these teenagers would understand a lot more about life and how this world works than they would ever learn, you know, from the lectures on, you know, various topics, podcasts, and other stuff. United States is a very great place. Why is it a great place? Because it has all the conditions you need to live as a person. Mm. You can actually be yourself. And if you are doing any type of activity, you can monetize in the percent of the modern world. That's not the case. You can do something, but you cannot you know, make bread from it. You cannot turn it into something valuable just because there's uh, no capacity for it within the economy or the society or whatever. Just understanding that you have everything you ever need. The only thing that you don't have is your will is the best advice you could give to the teenagers in the United States. Because right now, looking back at those kids, they had everything. They didn't want anything. Well, I think just 15 and 16 and 17-year-olds, they're still children. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking for myself. And at some point in your life, there's the switch when you come to take things more seriously. And that's when you actually get to do your best and show who you really are. If you do something you'll succeed. That's all. So that comes to my last question. There's a lot of both of us leaning into faith. I, I'm leaning into faith when I share this with you and then ask a question is I remember before you left, I gave you a military coin. That... You gave me a military coin and I still have it to this day. You know who else gave me a military coin? Mike Sanders, yes. <laughs> Did you know that that coin when he was Coach Mike? <laughs> hey, listen, um, you know, 
listeners, I, I had and have had an assistant coach that's a dear friend of mine that is still serving the United States military, Coach Mike, who got to help Mark and, and Fohad and others on the Highlands Ranch tennis team. And uh, this, this military coin was just something that it meant a lot to me. It was almost like a, a brotherhood between Coach Mike and I, which is why he gifted it to me. And when I knew that Mark had to go home, I gave it to him as a brotherhood. And you, in exchange, gave me a few Ukrainian flags, money, some things that I never thought I would have that flag and have it be something that makes me just so proud of your country. And the advice that you just shared to an American teenager, there is so much the United States of America can learn from Ukraine. There's so much that, yes, we can be grateful for, but that we can also leverage and maximize with opportunity by learning and appreciating what the Ukrainian people have done. I cannot believe, Mark, that those coincidences, those connecting of dots of military coins and Ukrainian flags would lead to the question that I'm going to ask you is, your family's very proud of you. I'm proud of you. Your, your old teammates from Highlands Ranch High School are proud of you. Your brother from Bolivia, Fohad, who I look forward to having on an episode as well, uh, is proud of you. Coach Mike is proud of you. Knowing what you know now and your legacy, Mark's legacy, what you want to leave on this earth, the Built to Be project was built off of a mission to go try to help as many people as I possibly can. Tell me about your mission, Mark. And after everything said and done, how do you want to be most remembered? I just want to be remembered as someone who has actually done more than was done for me. And uh, actually, the more I live, I understand. The more I understand uh, the statement, because when you receive something, you are entitled to give out something from your life. So, mm. meaning uh, each each of us is a very unique person, and each of us has something to offer to this world that is not yet present in it. In my current situation, what I do, you know, as I volunteered you know, to deliver you know the basic supplies that cover the basic needs you know for uh, people who are relocated within the ukraine that's what i've been doing for the last couple of months throughout the, the entire time of the war uh, i've been donating various funds to support the people who are in need because uh, you don't actually get to see this on the news, but there are a lot of people who actually do not have home, who do not have shelter, people who do not have food. And these things are real. Maybe I'm not going to be remembered for it, but I knew that I did something, so it gets better. You don't necessarily have to be remembered for it. You just have to do something that's going to make this world a better spot. 
if you're okay with it. When you do it plenty of times, that's how you're going to be remembered. People are going to say, well, you know, here's this guy. It doesn't have to be something big. That doesn't have to be something big. I think through the years, I still remember, you know, when I broke my arm, uh, my, a friend of mine helped me to get home. Right? Mm. He probably doesn't remember that. He, he doesn't remember it by now. But to this day, he lives in my memory, and I'm very grateful for him being my support in that tough time when you know I was very hurt. And it's it's it's, it's the case about any situation. And it's the case about really anything, even small things. I still remember that small thing, small deed that he done. That's how you are remembered. You just do the right thing, you get remembered. Beautifully said, Mark. And I cannot thank you enough for spending some time with me on the BTB project. There's so much wisdom and knowledge that our listeners can take away from your journey, your story. And I'm grateful for how these dots have connected in our life and for the lives that you're going to impact because of this recording. I appreciate your time and thanks again for joining. Yeah. I appreciate your time and taking your time to talk to me. That's I can be grateful for it. That's all. Excellent. Uh, Listeners, Mark's story is one of many, and as a as a nation and as a community, we uh, stand with Ukraine. We are proud of them. Impossible is nothing. If any circumstance in life is something that seems daunting or that you can't achieve it and you can't overcome it, I ask that you listen wisely to advice that Mark has shared and other stories have shared throughout the podcast. Let's continue to get better each and every day and support one another to be whatever we want to become. I'm proud of each and every one of you, and thanks for listening. You're told I'll be your heart, temptation.